So, as I mentioned, I want to say some things about working with the critic. And uh, I gave a day on this subject a week or two ago, maybe last week. And um, I'm always amazed how helpful it is for people. Not amazed, actually, but it's such a common theme for so many. And um, what's always interesting to me with working with people around their self-judgments and critics or their perfectionists or their tyrants or their, my favorite new word is the inadequator, (laughs) the guilt tripper, the taskmaster, the controller, the never satisfied one, the shamer, that uh, what always surprises me is how people uh, sort of accept it as part of life and accept it as part of the fabric of the mind and um, allow it to continue and, and have a lot of dominance and control over one's life. And of course when we do that, when we allow something that never thinks that we're enough to have control over our lives or a lot of influence, then guess what? We feel miserable. (laughs) We believe the messages. We believe the messenger. So, um, just like when, if you remember back to when you hadn't ever meditated before, had never practiced mindfulness before, and then you practice mindfulness, and then there was a realization, oh, I can be mindful, I can be present. What a concept. <laughs> and that's quite revolutionary for, for many of us. Oh, wow, I can actually be cognizant and not so embroiled in this, whatever this is. And it's the same thing with the critic. I've worked with hundreds of people uh, one-on-one over the last 10-12 years uh, doing this work on the critic and always uh, um, just struck by that the how surprising it is for many people to, to see that they can actually look at this thing this pattern, this habit, this dream of consciousness and and actually do some really good work around it. And sometimes just the very turning towards it is almost pulls pulls the rug out from under it. Because prior to that, we've just accepted it's part of the fabric. My mind just is on my case about everything all the time that I never do right, right? And we've grown up with that, you know, the the superego structure, you know, starts maybe four or five years old. It's fully developed around age seven or something like that. So it's pretty old, some of us. (laughs) (laughs) And familiar, it's like, you know, it's like an old, you know, grumpy friend we have hanging around. (laughs) So, uh, in the context of the 
the Buddhist tradition, the closest analogy to it is the the this figure in the in the ancient India in the text called Mara. We don't have a sometimes it's it's it's, it's iconographically personified as this demon with huge teeth and uh, is the lord of death. And Mara, in the text, in, in, over the Buddha's lifetime, would come visit him. And the most famous time that, that, that you probably know about is they came to visit him on the night of his awakening, when the Buddha sat down under the Bodhi tree and said, I will not get up from this seat until I attain full and perfect enlightenment which is something that we don't do very often. <laughs> so he sat down and, of course, was visited by uh, his inner demons, you could say, uh, by the, all the unconscious forces of the ego that had yet to be <coughs> understood and liberated. And uh, one of the voices, one of the inner demons, you could say, was Mara. And Mara came uh, in a particular, f- many different forms, but one pernicious form, once the Buddha had worked through a lot of lust and greed and hatred and fear, and was doubt. So Mara comes and says, see if this sounds familiar, who do you think you are to be sitting on the throne of enlightenment? Who do you think you are? This is the seat of all the Buddhas of all ages. And look at you, Mr. Sid. Siddhartha was his name. <laughs> Who do you think you are? And the Buddha, being uh, unshakable in his confidence, so right through this projection of the mind, and he leaned down, touched the earth. It's called the Bhumisbhasha Mudra, which is what you see here, if you can see this. That's what, the, that's what the Buddha's doing. He's touching the earth and saying, I am worthy. I am completely and utterly worthy as a human being, as the earth is my witness, to take this seat of enlightenment. So you might try doing that sometime, sitting on the earth. The earth is our witness that we have every right to be here to take our place, to take our seat, wherever we are. Which is very different than believing the critic that often, for many of us, is saying, you're basically not worthy to be here. You're just not good enough. You're not worthy to be at Spirit Rock, you're not worthy to meditate, you're not worthy... Who knows? You can fill in the... Fill in the long list of the blanks. So what's interesting about that story of Mara and the Buddha is after the Buddha attained full awakening, Mara didn't go away. Mara is the personification of the egoic forces and egoic tendencies, is very tenacious. So periodically the Buddha would be sitting, teaching, meditating, and... Mara would sort of sneak up in disguise, as, as it does in our own mind, and says, would say something like to the Buddha, you've worked really hard, you've, you've taught so many great teachings, 
you've um, started this great tradition. You, sh- you can retire now. You can take it easy. Chill out. <coughs> Go disappear. Go attain full nibbana. Be out of my life. And in the beginning, you know, it can sound like the voice of reason. Oh, you've been working really hard. You can t- you can sleep in tomorrow. You don't need to meditate. You know, you're going to go to spirit walk on Monday night. That's okay. It's like it sounds sounds reasonable. It sounds like it's on your side. Yeah, I'm pretty tired. I'll take the morning off from sitting. Not the end of the world. You know. But of course, as we know, when we do that, you know, come eight o'clock when we've slept in, we're late for work and we're driving to work and the critics on our case for being such a lousy, lazy meditator. Is that familiar? Yeah. You can't win with the critic. So the Buddha would simply say, I see you, Mara, which is what we can say to the doubting mind, to the judging mind. I see you. I see this pattern for what it is, which is, it's a pattern, it's a habit, it's a bunch of thoughts and words that if I give validity to and authority to, I will suffer miserably. So, so the reason I'm giving this talk is to, is to bring it a little more into consciousness, a little more into awareness. And also to, to um, point out that by doing that, we can gain a lot of freedom, a lot of peace from that pattern. I think it's one. I think it's one of the things that I see. I see some of the biggest shifts in people that I work with when they get a handle on their critic. And sometimes a lot, of, a lot of practice can be really slow. Spiritual development is generally slow. But sometimes doing the work around the critic, we can have an exponential sense of inner space and freedom and ease. This is from. Um, uh, Hamid, the founder of the Diamond Approach work, who's uh, written a lot of great things about the critic. And this book, Soul Without Shame, is from one of his students, and it's one of the better books, I think, on the critic. So Hamid says, the problem is not that we want to be happy, but that we are going about it in the wrong way. That's what the Buddha said. That's why he taught. He said, people want to be happy, but I just don't know what, how to be happy. When we really see what we are going about, when we really see that we're going about it in the wrong way, we quit, and then life can unfold on its own. We cannot make it unfold. We can quit our rejection, our judgment, our intolerance, but we will quit these patterns only when we completely and totally see what they are doing, that they are hurting us. So we have to see, like with all suffering, we have to really look at it in the face. We have to really see it, open to it, feel it, acknowledge it, let it in. Oh yeah, this really hurts. When I believe this voice, this idea that I'm not worthy, that I'm not good enough, that I'm hopeless, that I'm never going to get my life together, blah, 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 right? Fill in your own story line. It's tremendous suffering when we believe that.
So um, I like to read my my favorite cartoons on the theme of the critic um, called The Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. It's something I, I read a lot, so some of you may know this. Um, and it's a popular meditation pastime as well as life habit. So the six cartoons, and the first one says, choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. <laughs> Notice if you've done that this evening, right? Who's the perfect meditator, looking really enlightened, and just such a slump, and then you spaced out. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. <laughs> I once tried to persuade a friend of mine, she had a, a ten times magnification mirror, and I said, that's just a setup for the critic. That's this is like a lose-lose situation. So she went down to eight times. Considered a great victory. We live embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. Also a popular meditation habit. Make a mental note of all the people who you regularly disappoint. And I put in parentheses, especially people that share your last name. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. And there's a cartoon where a woman's getting compliment. Hey, you look great. And she's thinking, don't patronize me. And lastly, resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you will always feel. It's always a setup for misery. So, it's really important to laugh, right? As Wavy Gravy says, if you don't laugh, it just ain't funny. And um, if we can laugh at ourselves and not take ourselves so seriously and laugh at our mind, because the mind's a crazy thing. I mean, where do all these thoughts come from? You know, Stanford said some research can we think 60, 90,000 thoughts a day? You know, who just, if you get in the morning, say, oh, I'm going to think 65,000 thoughts a day. It's going to be a good day. <laughs> no, it just pop up when you sing meditation, trying to mind your own business and mind your breath, you know, and then boom, they're just thinking about everything, you know, Libya, the revolution, and, you know, is it going to happen in, you know, Yemen, and, you know, who cares, and do I care? I don't know. And it's bizarre. So it's good to take, take be light with it. So, on the, on, the, on the day, day long that I did, um, I asked people to write out their list of their like top 10, top 10, 20, you know, 50, top 10 <laughs> judgments. And, um, and then we shared them with each other. Oh. I know, like, oh, freak out. <laughs> not going to that workshop, <laughs> ever. <laughs> um, but it's actually great because it, when it normalized it, it's like, oh, you have that one too? God, I don't, doesn't that one suck? Yeah, can you? It's like, oh, it, you know, there's not that many judgments, just like there's not that many thoughts. There's not that many types of minds. You know, we all share the same stuff, you know. And we all, you know, and we all have different flavors, you know. And somebody might be a lousy driver over here, and someone's a terrible mom over here, and, you know, at least well, that's what the critic is saying. But it's, it's, it's a basic theme. So I was thinking of some of mine, mine are things like, um, 
all the projects that I've yet to complete in my house, you know, all the rooms that I haven't redecorated yet. Um, I had a great, this month has been a great practice for me with a critic. I've been um, recording uh, some uh, CDs for meditation and poetry and stuff, and I've gone through four different microphones, three different studios, um, and had to do endless, endless re-records and edits and... Um, and I know I was just thinking, <coughs> you know, I was just thinking in the meditation because you know nothing else to do when you. Th- <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> um, I was reflecting that the reason, the what was fueling the frustration was an unconscious judgment that I should have done it. I should have nailed it the first time. I should have somehow worked it out ahead of time to have done it perfectly the first time so I wouldn't be suffering all these, all these reruns. So it's interesting to catch these, and often very subtle and very kind of woven in there. And so we find ourselves getting frustrated or depressed or upset because we're not catching the deeper tone of the criticism. So that's where mindfulness really comes in handy because we, we can really track and just pay attention. Oh, what's really going? What, what, why, why is this frustrating? It's just you know I can reframe it, which I have been. It's oh, it's a learning. I'm learning about recording. It takes a long time to learn a new thing, whatever it is. Um, so how about um, I'm not a very good meditator. I'm not very mindful. You know, Buddhism's a terrible setup for the critic because it's so idealistic, right? There's all these beautiful qualities and, uh, you know, the ten perfections. I mean, they're right there. You know, you're screwed. You know, <laughs> how about the ten imperfections over here? <laughs> but we're just talking about the ten perfections. You know, patience, generosity, love, persistence, concentration, etc. Um, so it's to be mindful of how we when we study and learn about Buddhist practice and all these wonderful qualities and potentials of the human spirit, to not use that as a battering ram to say, well, why aren't you there? Why aren't you fully enlightened? And why aren't you more compassionate? And why aren't you more kind? And why aren't you more clear? Yeah, it's very easy to do. So when you go home, watch the judgment of, I should be more further ahead on my critic work. You know. I should have looked at this a long time ago. How come I haven't worked on my work on my critic? Yeah. So, so one way of understanding the critic is it's 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 a way of saying you're human, you have you're unique, you have these idiosyncrasies and foibles, and it's fundamentally not okay. It's not okay to be human. It's not okay to mess up. It's not okay to be wrong. It's not okay to make mistakes. It's not okay not to know. Yeah? So, so rationally, we know what well, that's crazy. We can't know everything. We make mistakes. Life is about making mistakes, and you learn. I had this great line, I think it's from Mark Twain. He said, uh, oh, I hope I can get it. Good judgment comes from experience. <laughs> experience comes from bad judgment. 
good judgments comes from experience, experience comes from bad judgment. That's how we learn, that's how we grow. We make mistakes, we listen, we look, we understand, we change. But the Christian like, no, you should have got it right the first time. <laughs> Hello? What planet are you on? So, I'm always amazed um, at how and when the critic surfaces. So one of my favorite places to notice it is when I'm backpacking, because there's nothing else going on when you're backpacking, you're just out in the woods and hiking and nothing to do and nowhere to go particularly, maybe the top of a hill or a mountain. Um, and you just, you know, with yourself and, and your thoughts, your mind. And um, so I watch the critic at work, I pay particular attention to, well, you really should have taken that trail. You know, this trail, the view's okay, but that trail really would have been Nirvana, you know. And that campsite at the end of that trail, I know would have been, you know, better, different. So there's no doing it right. That's the thing with the critic. There's no doing it. There's never. It's never. Show me a satisfied critic. <laughs> it's not. And it's nature. It's nature is to is to judge, is to criticize, is to improve, is to nudge, is to chastise. Yeah. So if we try to um, satisfy it, it's hopeless. And we just feed it, is what happens. So, and this is particularly true when we see the critic taking both sides, just like the example about <laughs> sleeping in, you know. Oh, go on, you've had a really hard day at work. You know, go get the Ben and Jerry's. You know. <laughs> go get the bottle of wine. Go get the whatever it is, you deserve it, you know. And then, you know, we've had, we're sitting around full of food and tons and you feel sick and gross and, you know. And then guess what happens? The critic that was so encouraging of you, rewarding yourself for doing so well at work, suddenly on your case. You're so gross. I can't believe you ate all that alone. I hope nobody sees, finds out. So Walter Scott said, who was a great British explorer, I believe, he said, court not the critic's smile, nor dread his frown. Court not the critic's smile, nor dread his frown. So we try to gain the favor of the critic. Because it's so merciless, why wouldn't we? You know, we, why wouldn't we try to placate it with doing what it wants so it would be quiet once in a while? Right? But it just empowers it. It gives it authority. It gives it strength. Gives it validity. So the most common form of the critic that I hear is that I'm not good enough and fill in the blank, I'm not good enough at my life, at my relationship, at love, at my work, in my study, in my Buddhist career, <laughs> my meditation path, 
you know, it's just not good enough. It's just not where it should be. And so the critic has a lot of shoulds in it. Should be something different than what is, which is a fundamental definition of suffering from a Buddhist perspective, to be in resistance with what is. Right? That's the definition of suffering. One, one form, one definition of suffering. To resist the truth of what is, is suffering. And the critic is saying, this shouldn't have happened. You shouldn't be like this, and you shouldn't have done that. And how come you didn't know that? So a story that I tell about this is I was working, so I teach mindfulness in the corporate world, and I was working with some folks in a hedge fund. It was pre the crash, so that you know it was doing well, you know, well, you know, it was on a high. Um, it's been 2005, I think, and um, and the particular day the. The trader had made a particularly good trade, and he'd made about $50 million for the company. Well, I guess I should say he sold you know, so on that day, so the climax of that, that negotiation. And um, so I was working with him later in the afternoon, and I was ex- curious to see him and um, expecting to see him happy, you know, relaxed and, you know. Some pride, some healthy pride, you know. Good day, good day at the office. I made fifty million dollars, <laughs> and he looked really stressed and anxious, and not at all what I imagined. And I thought, what's going on? I asked him, what's going on? And basically, he said, I should have bought a little earlier, and if I'd held on a few more hours, I would have made a little more money. You know. So I said, yeah, you're right, you screwed up. (laughs) It's a bad day at work. You're fired. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) So where are the places that you don't feel enough? Where does that place of that voice arise? What? I just thought of a new one. You just thought of a new one? (laughs) (laughs) You thought of a new one. He he hasn't made $50 million at work. So one place I hear it a lot is um, around parenting. I don't know if I've met a parent that feels like, you know, they've done a good enough job. <laughs> you know, because it's, impo- you know, it's an impossibly difficult task. It's a beautiful task and it's impossibly difficult because there's no manual, there's no roadmap. You just figure it out and you stumble along like life from one mistake to the next and with as much love as possible and it all seems to work out. How about social media? Who feels good enough using social media? (laughs) What social media? Exactly, I know. Or computers. You know, when your computer doesn't work. I've got this fancy new recorder for my recordings, and, you know, it malfunctions a lot, and I have no idea, you know. I don't feel good enough about my technology expertise. Or relationships, popular one. Sexuality. Love. Who feels good enough in the love department? <laughs> Either to give or to receive. 
Any other favorites? Anybody <laughs> daring to shout out your favorite uh, deficiencies? Fear. fear. You don't have enough fear? <laughs> you have too much fear? Too much fear. Yoga class. Huh? I was just thinking yoga class. Who doesn't feel you know, limber enough, unless you're a pretzel, in a yoga class? Any other favorites? Writing. Writing. Oh, yeah. Creative endeavors. Who doesn't feel mm. not good, deficient when you're in front of your easel, your blank page, accomplishments? Body image. Body image, yeah. Dealing with anger, delivering anger in a, a, a way that doesn't make you look like a angry witch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> delivering anger so you don't look like you're an angry witch. So many ways, many ways, as many people as are in the room. So, so what's up with that critic thing? Gosh. It's so pervasive. You know, why would we maintain such a structure and a habit? Clearly doesn't make us feel good. So usually the critic, you know, we, we, we internalize messages imprinting from the past, from our early years. And we also, <coughs> as, as a young, growing infant, you know, we're, we're navigating this world of adults and families and family systems, and we're very vulnerable. The need for love and affection and approval and to fit in is profound. So we develop these inner mechanisms that help navigate the world of right and wrong, good and bad. So we fit in. So we maintain this as the maximize the stream excuse me, of love and warmth and affection. There's many other ways why the, why the, the superego structure develops, but it can be interesting to reflect on when you listen to your critic, whose voice does it sound like? Mom. <laughs> <laughs> so it can sound like, right, so it can sound like parental figures, family members, school. Teacher teachers, religion, church. And uh, you know, these, these, these imprints got in at such a young age that were so impressionable that they left very deep uh, templates and um, become entrenched over the years. And when not looked at, they just deepen and harden into character, into view, into belief. So and sometimes, we, mostly we notice the critic verbally, but it's also felt energetically. There's a sort of deflation. We feel it physically as a collapse. We feel as foggy brain, as low energy. We feel it emotionally as hope, hopelessness, helplessness. Many different forms um, we can be 
we can feel. So, but as I mentioned earlier, the good news is um, when we start to look at this and really bring it into conscious attention, into our practice, we can make significant shifts in it. And I've seen this over the years. I, I, when I started meditating, I had a pretty vicious critic. I read my old journals and I can see it. It's like, oh my God, it's intense. And um, mindfulness practice helps a lot. Loving-kindness practice is tremendously helpful. As, I, as, as we did a little meta practice at the end of the sitting, using phrases right, of life-affirming wishes for ourselves, which are completely antithetical to the critic. So when we're saying to ourselves, may I be well, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I love myself, may I accept myself, we're we're creating wholesome, positive neural pathways that in my experience help mitigate and supplant the, the more deeper grooves of the critic. So I remember working with a as I'm teaching a retreat up the hill and working with an actor. And of course, if you're in the acting profession, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, what happens in newspaper? You, you're reviewed by the critic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a setup for the critic. Any performance art, it's a setup for the critic, external, internal. So he had a pretty, pretty well developed critic. But he'd been doing a lot of work on it through his practice, through mindfulness. And one day he was he reported to me as he was walking down the hill and his critics on his case about his meditation or something not being enough. And with that mindful awareness he was able to turn to it and just see, oh, it's just a bunch of thoughts. It's just a bunch of thoughts. That's all the critic is, it's just a habitual stream of consciousness. Not all it is, but a lot of what it is. And we give a lot of authority to those words. You know, if we think 65,000 thoughts a day, you know, we're giving a lot of attention to a certain kind of thought of unworthiness, not good enough, not smart enough. So just that, when we see that, oh, it's just a bunch of thoughts. So one practice that can be helpful, as well as doing the matter practice, which is also using words, but in a more positive way, is to just, after each judgment, you just say the sky is blue, grass is green. Sky is blue, grass is green. Just more words. Or you do, or you offer yourself a metaphrase after each judgment. So you're lying in bed, oh, that was, you were so mean on that phone call today. May I be happy? <laughs> I can't believe you spaced out that email. That's so incompetent. And may I be peaceful? <laughs> and this room is so messy. God, you're such a slob. Thank you. May I be well? <laughs> and it's, you know, it's, it's amusing, but it's also powerful. Because you're saying, okay, this is a bunch of thoughts, and I'm going to replace them with thoughts that I have a lot more preference for. Thank you very much. 
So another thing that, uh, aside from the mindfulness practice, um, that really had a profound impact on me working with a critic is when I actually let myself feel the pain of the barrage, right? So the critic is often a barrage. It's just someone just letting rip, venting. And I was sitting in this trailer somewhere meditating in Norfolk in England and I just, the, the critic was just, you know, full force. And I was, I, was I, I guess for whatever reason I was just dropped into my heart and I just felt how brutal it is to be on the end of that. If you imagine, you, you know, you write out your list of your judgments, your top 30 judgments, and you give it to your best friend and you say, just follow me around today. <laughs> And just read them like every few minutes. You know, just comment on everything that I do and how it wasn't good enough, perfect enough, smart enough, sharp enough, cool enough. How long would our friendship wouldn't last more than five minutes, right? But we let uh, the critic we stick it on our back in a little backpack and we just trudge it around, even the mountains into Hawaii. Follows us around. Just not good enough surfer. Drink too many Mai Tais, you know, whatever. So it's interesting what we put up with. But so when, so when I felt, I let myself feel the pain of it, and then something snapped. You know, it's a, it, with practice we have these insights, we have these aha moments, and something shifts in the fabric of our being. That's what an insight is, it, it causes a shift. And although, the, you know, the, I'm not saying that the, the, the critic dried up in that moment, it didn't, but something shifted in my alliance with it. That I see it more, I saw it more clearly as an underminer of happiness, as the inadequator, the inadequator, <laughs> starring our governor, our former governor. <laughs> um, that wasn't a political commentary, that was just... Terminator and not equator, you know. Sorry, bad joke. It's okay, we like that one. We like that one, okay, we like that one. <laughs> it could be a political commentary, but I'm not going to go there. Um, so, I wish I had another couple of hours. Um, dear Lord, so far it has been a good day. This is for the, the uh, well, it's for the part of us that's having a hard time with the critic. Dear Lord, so far it has been a good day. I haven't lost my temper, shouted at anybody, or forgot anything. Amazingly, I have not told any lies, been conceited or selfish, nor have I done anybody any harm. I haven't smoked or even had a drink. Now, if you please, I must get on with my day. But first, I must get out of my bed. <laughs> so, may we be that kind to ourselves in the morning. 
So normally what we do with the critic is, in the language of uh, this book, So Without Shame, and the language that I like to use, is what we, 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 what we do is we engage the critic, just like we engage somebody in dialogue. So the first thing we often do is we try to rationalize. What do you mean I, I was terrible at work? I did a really good job yesterday, and you know, I, uh, I, I cleaned the car, you know, and I took the trash out, and I'm really a good person. I sent off my donation to, you know, somebody, and sound familiar? We're trying to rationalize against this pretty pervasive voice. So all that does is we just give power to the critic, as I mentioned earlier. It gives it validity. We ultimately want to have a stance where we're basically ignoring it and disinterested. It's like disinterested, amused, ignoring, just like a yapping dog. Follows you around, and sometimes just lost the yapping dog. No big deal. You know, the, the critic will no doubt can't carry on yapping, but if you're not bothered by it, it's not a problem. Right? And when we, not, when we don't feed something, it withers away on the vine. When we're trying to fight with it and argue with it and rationalize, we're just feeding it, giving it more energy. So, as Dustin Hoffman once wrote, a good review from the critic is just another day of execution. <laughs> we would know. So, so engage, we believe. We, we, and we allow the critic to maintain its stance because, because we believe there's a grain of truth or more than a grain of truth in it. And therefore, if, if there's truth in it, therefore it's allowed to keep harassing me about it. Right? But if, again, superimposing your friend, say you do something with a friend and you mess up and you let somebody down, you make amends, you apologize, and then you move on. You don't let your friend call you 50 times a day for the next 365 days and say, hey, you really screwed up. You say, thank you, I know, thank you, I'm sorry, I got it, I intend to do better next time, right? That's all we need to do. But with the critic, we just let it... Mm, 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 mm. We confuse the critic... One of the reasons we give the critical authority is because we confuse it with discernment and conscience. So, to let go of judgment doesn't mean to say we let go of ju- uh, discernment. Discernment is just the natural intelligence of the mind to discriminate. You know, we need discrimination, discernment in our lives all the time. When we're working, planning, making decisions, uh, and I'm giving this talk, I'm deciding, discriminating what to be useful, what's not useful. Judgment in this context has an emotional laden, emotional heavy burden to it. Where it's not just, um, mm, well, I didn't do the dishes today. It's, you didn't do the dishes today, you're such a slob. You didn't, you didn't do the dishes today, you just can't get your life together. It's pathetic. See the difference? The fact is the same. Dirty dishes. It's what, what, what's, what's woven into that. 
So the other piece is um, uh, believing that if we let go of the critic, we will let go of conscience. The critic often, just like my the voice of reason, masquerades as the voice of conscience. Well, you need me, because how do we know what's right and wrong? How do we know what to do? If you don't listen to me, you'll just be a selfish, self-centered, uncaring slob. And you won't work, and you won't make money, you won't do good things. Right? But that's not really a sustaining source of motivation. Right? One is not pleasing it. Two, it's not really balanced. So it requires... Uh, our conscience comes from a much deeper quality of presence, awareness, connection with our heart, connection with empathy. And the critic doesn't have any of that. Doesn't have the depth. And to notice whatever you do inside goes outside. Whatever you do outside applies inside. So if you're critical with yourself, Guess what you are around pe- other people, usually. You know, it goes both ways. So with the practice, uh, with mindfulness practice, I'm just going to give a few, because I'm running out of time here, I'm going to give a few just practical strategies. So, so the first simple practice is just to use mindfulness. Just to be present whenever the critic is present and to notice it and to name it. Oh, judging. Oh, now I'm judging, judging. Oh, judging, 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 judging. <laughs> can get really long and really boring. <laughs> judging, judging. So it actually, so you're really being clear when you're thinking, when you're discerning, and when you're judging. To bring it into relief. Oh, there it is. Write the judgments out. Get them on paper. When we read, we, 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 we bring a much different quality of discernment when we read something than when we're just listening to the soup in our head. Write them out. I did this exercise using some Byron Katie's work um, asking the four questions. So you write your judgments out. Is this true? Is this true? I'm incompetent. Or I'm never going to get my life together. Or whatever your story is. Is it true? How can I know that it's true? What do I get for holding that belief that I'm a loser? As an, a license plate in Forest Knowles has. Number one loser. And the last one is, uh, who, would I, who would I be without that belief? Who, who would I be without that belief, without that story? Yeah. Who would I be without that story that I'm never really going to get it together? I'd probably be lighter, you know, a little more freer, a little more at ease. So noticing, naming, writing them down, questioning the logic in them. Even if you believe that they're true, what do you get, what's the, what happens when you, when you internalize that? Oh, I feel shitty. I feel unworthy. Another fun practice is to, na- is to, uh, to count them. So everybody tomorrow, count your judgments. Just for the hell of it. And then I'll have a competition next week, see who counted had the most. <laughs> 683, 924, you know. It can be a lot. You miss, you only catch one in 10, so you can just you know, multiply it by 10, that's your real number. Um, 
you know, once you get past 379, it's like, oh, please. Oh, please. That's actually my favorite response to the critics, oh, please. You know, I, if I trip over in the street, or I forget something, or forget an important meeting, you know, there's, there's times when we can just guarantee the critic is just going to come right on cue. And I, so I, I see it out of the corner of my eye, oh, please. <laughs> That's the best you can do. <laughs> So um, I like to use disarming strategies. Um, the critic is usually because we, we don't want to let in the judgment. We're usually we're usually uh, oppositional. No, I'm not. We're arguing, defending. So disarming is things like thank you. Oh, you're really hopeless. Thank you. That's really helpful. Anything else? No. Okay. Good. Thank you. Let me know if you've got any more thoughts in there. So sarcasm, humor, dry, dry. Um, you know, when we when we can laugh at it, when there's humor, there's space. When there's space, we're not so identified. When we're not identified, we're not suffering. So counting, using meta practice, replacing them with a neutral statement: sky is blue, sun is round. I think the moon looks round sometimes. Um, <laughs> Feel, to, to feel compassion for when you're caught, to feel the pain in the heart, um, to exaggerate it. You know what? You're right. I am really the worst meditator in this room. In fact, I'm the worst meditator in the whole world. How did you know? God, I hope they don't find out. They're going to kick me out. You know, again, it's just, it's just making light of it. If, if you actually believe that, then don't use it. But if, if you can do it with some space, Disengage it. So engaging, as I talked about, where, we, where we're believing, we're, we're embroiled in the, in the process. Disengaging is when we use a strategy like humor, like agreeing, like exaggerating, like counting, where it disengages so it doesn't actually land and we don't collapse. The sign of a judgment landing is we collapse, we feel, we feel literally, you know, collapse. We're worthy, less foggy, cloudy. Um, to question, is that true? Just in the way, is that true? Is that really true? I'm never going to get my life together. Who knows? Maybe you're right. But you don't know, because I've got, who knows, many years left, and maybe it will come together tomorrow. You never know. And to or shift your attention. As uh, the composer Gene Sibelius wrote, pay no attention to what the critics say. A statue has never been erected, erected in honor of a critic. <laughs> pay no attention to what the critics say. A statue has never been erected in honor of a critic. And then sometimes you can bring out the sword of wisdom. Sometimes the Buddha is personified in the Mahayana tradition with a sword, cuts through delusion. And, um, and uh, as Joseph Goldstein sometimes says when working with the, the mind, the tenacious mind that just won't shut up, you can just say, bring the sword out, enough, enough. Sometimes we have that gathering of the mind where we, where we can just bring that strength and say, enough, stop, no more, enough battering, 
And there's a place for that. It's not a f- it, we can't use it all the time. But at times, we, can, we, we do have the strength and awareness to say, enough, stop, this is not true, not helpful, no thank you. Just like we would to somebody who was on our case, unnecessarily. We'd say, okay, thank you, enough. So it's healthy, protective boundary. Finally, my last image. Um, so when I was on retreat, I used to do these long retreats at, in, at IMS and Barry. And I would picture the judge, like those English judges with the big gray white wigs. You know, with this hammer, you know. Order! Order! Bad. This one is bad. So hamming it up, you know, just making light of it. And as uh, W.E.B. Dubois, Dubois wrote, the most important thing is this, to be ready to give up what you are for what you might become. The most important thing is this, to be ready to give up what you are for what you might become. To be ready to give up what you are for what you might become. the burden of your critic, and if you're not free, may you at least learn how to recognize and how to work with it, how to use these strategies. Um, as I mentioned, this book that I, I referred to earlier, Soul Without, Soul Without Shame, Byron Brown, uh, is very, I found very helpful. There are a couple of other books, Taming Your Gremlins, there's a lovely book called 100 Demons, and there's another new book came out last year, I forget the name of it. Um, Byron, I just noticed in the foyer, there's some flyers. Uh, he's doing a three-day workshop on working with the critic in September in Berkeley. So if this is a subject of interest to you, highly recommend it. Um, you're welcome to download, as far as I know, the talks from the day long that I led. And as you know, these talks recorded here Monday nights they're recorded and they're available some of them this one will be uh, on Dharma Seed tape library dharmaseed.org d-h-a-r-m-a-s-e-e-d.org so um, uh, may you find that useful Um, so these evenings are on a Dharma basis so um, appreciate your offerings of donations to support the teachers, including myself, to keep teaching our work. I will be here next week, um, so look forward to that, and have a lovely week, and may you be free of your critics. Thank you. Blessings.